0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When we read the Bible, it produces a variety of emotions within us. And that's a good thing. Because we have favorite places to go in Scripture knowing what it produces, knowing what it offers us. For example, when we need comfort in the middle of grief, we go to places like Psalm 23... We go to the words and promises of Jesus. We go to the Easter account, and it produces comfort and joy and peace within us. The Bible's great, too, if you want action and adventure, if you want to get your heart pumping, if you want to go on a great journey. You can read about David and Goliath. You can read about Daniel and the lion's den. You can read about the battle of Jericho. Don't get your blood pumping just as much as an action or adventure movie will. We have places in the Bible that encourage us to grow in our faith. The epistles, proverbs, psalms. Reading the Bible, if you ask me, is a lot like what we see in the image. It's like sitting in front of a piece of art reading the Bible. Now, let's not make a mistake. The Bible is not just a piece of art. It is God's Word for you. It's not just a nice painting. It's not a book of stories or fables for kids. It's not a book of nighttime stories. But you know what I mean? Just like you can sit in front of a piece of art and have it produce a reaction within you, when we look at God's Word... When we experience God's word, it can do a similar thing, produces things within us. So, if we agree about that, then let me ask you a question. When you look at Genesis chapter 22, this account of Abraham and Isaac, what do you see? What do you see when you look at Genesis 22? And I want to start by saying that there are certainly positive aspects to this account. It's not all bad by any means. We see good things like Abraham's faith. We see good things like God's intervention at the crucial moment. We don't want to forget that. But I want to give you permission today to be honest and to be open About some negative emotions that it might bring up within you. And I'm going to be honest and direct with you today. It does that for me. Because when we look at Genesis 22, like this guy in the image looking at this account, be honest, looking at Genesis 22, it almost makes me feel physically sick. I get a pit in my stomach. I get a lump in my throat. I do not like how I feel. Because looking at this image, looking at this picture, as a father of an almost three-year-old, there's a kid that lives in my house that looks a lot like that. Doesn't matter if you're a parent to a boy or a girl. You can put yourselves in the shoes of Abraham and you can see your kid there. When we really stop and to put ourselves into this story, when we look at it, it is not a fun experience. I literally had tears coming down my eyes on Friday looking at this, looking at Genesis 22. So let's, let's just pause for a moment. I don't want us to skip to the end today. I want us to grapple with what's really happening here in Genesis 22. So let's stop and identify what we see here. When we look at Genesis 22, when I look at this account, I see a father who even though he was a patriarch, one of the original faithful fathers of Christianity, I have a strong negative reaction to Abraham's faithfulness. I have a negative reaction to what I see here in Abraham. Because nowhere in this account from Genesis 22 does it talk about Abraham having second thoughts. Even for a second. Nowhere do we see in Genesis 22 Abraham pleading with God. Nowhere do we see a conversation between Abraham and God where he says, no God, no, don't make me do this. Take back your command. Nowhere. Nowhere do we see Abraham responding, but wait, God, this is the son that you promised me. You promised me this kid. You promised that this is the one who is going to be a blessing to the nations. You promised me that I was going to have as many kids as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Nowhere. On the contrary, what we see, Genesis 22, verse 2, literally, we see God speaking to Abraham, and the very next verse says, And Abraham arose the next morning and took his son and a few guys and set off for Mount Moriah. What? I do not understand that at all. I don't understand Abraham. I don't identify with Abraham, and I don't know that I want to. I don't think I could ever do that. I don't want to have to do that. I feel so much distance from Abraham. I, I don't get him. I don't understand this. I feel so much grief. And I feel so much anger when I look at Isaac. Because he's just a kid. He's just a kid that trusts his dad. His dad says, let's go on a trip together. And he says, okay, dad, I'll go with you. And as we walk up the mountain in Genesis 22 with this father and son, the pit just grows deeper and deeper in my stomach. Because you can just hear it. You can hear Isaac telling his dad, trusting naively, Dad, we're going up the mountain to make a sacrifice, and I see fire. I see wood. Where's the lamb, Dad? I don't get it. I don't like this at all. How could this account from Genesis 22 not not be triggering for someone who's experienced abuse from a parent in their past, let alone be triggering for any parent that loves their kid. It's not hard to put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham, whether we're parents of boys or girls, but I don't want to go to that place. The pit in my stomach, it only grows as they make their way up the mountain and the silence from God is deafening. It's deafening, because God speaks in Genesis 22, verse 1, tells Abraham, go to the mountain I'm going to tell you about and sacrifice your son to me there, and God doesn't speak another word. God doesn't speak again. The angel of the Lord intervenes at the right moment. The angel of the Lord blesses Abraham at the end of all this. God doesn't say another word. And that's when our emotions really get kicked into overdrive. Because we've talked about what we see in Abraham and Isaac. But let's talk about what we see in God then here in Genesis 22. How could God do this? When we look at this account, it's like we see the exact opposite of everything we've ever learned about God. A God who commands a faithful person to slaughter To sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise, the one God promised him? It's like all our worst nightmares about God have come true. I don't like the God that I see as they walk up the mountain in Genesis 22. Let me cut to the chase here. Answer the question, what do I see in Genesis 22? I do not like what I see at all. It makes me feel sick. I see an awful, horrible, unrelatable set of circumstances. And it is perfectly okay for us to say that and identify that. I want to flip the question now for a minute. Let's flip the question. Because we've asked the question, what do you see? What do we see? In the middle of our reaction to this story, I often, I think we often, get caught up in our own thoughts and feelings, and emotions. We're directed inward. We place ourselves into the story as if we're Abraham, right? That is normal. That's natural. That's okay. But let's flip this and look at this account from God's perspective. Let's ask the question, what does God see in Genesis 22? First and foremost, this is crucially important for you to hear, what God sees is a test. God sees a test of Abraham, not a temptation. God does not tempt Abraham to sin. This is not trying to get Abraham to do the wrong thing. Listen to the words of the epistle reading from James that we heard earlier. God himself tempts no one. He's testing Abraham, putting him in a set of circumstances that offer him the opportunity to show his faith. First and foremost, God sees a test Of Abraham. But contrary to what any of us would do, certainly I'll speak for myself, contrary to what I would ever do, ever want to do, what God sees in Abraham is faith. He sees faithfulness in Abraham. But when he looks down on Mount Moriah that day, God Looking at what's happening, he sees Abraham say something so important for us to hear as well. I need to disagree with our English Bibles in Genesis 22 for a moment. If you read a Bible commentary about Genesis 22, study the Hebrew of Genesis 22. I did this week. Our English Bibles don't give us a very helpful word. Because a few times along the way, if you read the English, what we hear Abraham's response to Isaac's question being, Isaac asked the question, Dad, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And in English we see, the Lord will provide. And afterwards, after all this is done... Abraham names this place the Lord will provide. That's really a stretch of the actual language there because what Moses writes, the word that Moses writes in Genesis 22 is the word sees, the thing that your eye does. This is not about providing. You can sort of stretch that language to say, well, the Lord is going to see to it, and that might be how we get to that word provide. But the word that he's really writing is the thing our eyes do. Abraham responds to Isaac and says, Isaac, when we get up there, the Lord is going to see. Afterwards, after all this is done, Abraham says, on this mountain the Lord will see. And that's so important. Because that's exactly what God did that day. God was watching that day and what God saw was just as graphic and brutal and horrific as you and I see and feel. God never intended Abraham to go through with this sacrifice because when he looked down, when he saw what was happening on Mount Moriah that day, the exact same mountain that Abraham and Isaac go up is the same one that the city of Jerusalem will be built on in later generations. God sees that day that they are not on the right mountain for a father to sacrifice his only son. And not only that, God sees what he saw was that it was the wrong father and son, too. What he saw was a moment that pointed forward to the far more difficult day when it would be him, God the Father, and his only son going up a mountain together. The far more difficult day when it would be God the Father and his only begotten precious son of the promise, Jesus on Mount Calvary. And on that day, the death blow would not be spared. On that day, there was no angel that was going to intervene and stop his hand. No, the death blow would land on Jesus on that mountain the sacrifice would be made and the father would turn his face away from his only son and leave him there, abandon him there to die a brutal, graphic death tied up to a pile of wood. And he did it so that you, so that each of you would be made his child, By faith. When we survey the wondrous cross. Where sorrow and love flow mingled down. What we see is a day like any other. Unlike any other. When God the Father went through with what none of us would be capable of, or wanting to do ourselves. And he did it for your benefit. He did it for you. In this season of Lent, dear brothers, sisters in Jesus, when we look within ourselves when we hold up the mirror and look within ourselves and see our sinfulness and see our brokenness and see how messed up we are, we should be filled with that same righteous anger and horror. When we see our own sinfulness, as when we look at these two going up the mountain in Genesis 22, we should be filled with those same feelings. But the whole point of this season, the whole point of Lent, the whole point of how we practice these 40 days of things like getting ash put on our foreheads, the whole reason we give things up, or the reason we add something new to our routine, it's not about ourselves. It's not about proving our willpower. It's not about showing God our faithfulness. It's to help us see. Jesus more clearly. The whole point of this season is that we want to see Jesus clearly. It's to help us see the gruesome, terrible, unimaginable, but beautiful, saving, wonderful work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb. For you. As we walk the path to the cross and the tomb this year, it feels a lot like walking up the mountain with Abraham and Isaac because we know what's coming. We know what's going to happen, how hard this is going to be. And as we do that... I'd ask you to keep that same question in mind these 40 days. What do you see? Because what God wants you to see in this season is his great love for you. God wants you to see the lengths that he is willing to go. God wants you to see the horrors that he is willing to endure so that you could be his forever. Lent is a time to turn our eyes away from ourselves and to our Savior who bled, who died, and who rose for you. My prayer is that God would help us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.